as we come to your word, O oh Lord. We thank you for everything that it does to conform us to the image of Christ. We thank you that it is sufficient. We thank you that it is authoritative. We thank you that it is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and for training in righteousness, that we may be equipped for every good work. And Father, we know, we know that you accomplish what you will with your word. And so to that end, we pray that you would use your word today to strengthen us, to encourage us, to give us wisdom, to give us conviction, to give us comfort, and above all, to glorify Christ. We pray for our children who are here, children who are outside of the womb as well as children who are inside of the womb. And we pray, O oh God, that in your time, you would save our children, that you would draw them to faith in Christ. And we pray that you would give us the wisdom to continue to faithfully plant seeds of the gospel in their hearts, that they may be saved. O oh Lord, use this time to accomplish every purpose that you have ordained for the glory of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible with you, please turn to Psalm 32. Uh, as most of you know, we're going through this, the book of John uh, normally, but on the first Sunday of every month we preach a psalm, and that's what we've been doing since we started our study in John, and we are at Psalm 32 this week. So please turn to Psalm 32. This is such a relevant psalm. It's a psalm that is absolutely timeless, and it's a psalm that is just loaded with the gospel. Uh, I think you'll agree as we go through it. So I'm, I've been looking forward to this time together all week. Personal privacy is uh, obviously a major issue in our day and age. Most of us are aware of the fact that it's a major issue in our day and age. But with technology advancing even faster than most of us are aware of it advancing, more than, more than uh, our awareness of how that technology works and what it uh, makes us vulnerable to, most people are somewhat unaware of just how compromised their personal information is, information that was perfectly safe a generation ago, information that was perfectly safe just 20 or 30 years ago. But there was a whistleblower a few years ago who tried to alert the public to the degree to which the consumer's personal information has been compromised. Uh, you may have heard of him. His name is Edward Snowden. In May of 2013, Snowden was a computer intelligence consultant who was working for the CIA when he publicly uh, released information on the quickly increasing scope of government surveillance on, their, on its own citizens. Uh, most Americans had no idea that our government is regularly spying on us, uh, but several bills had been passed in the aftermath of 9-11, which allowed the government to have unprecedented access to information which was previously confidential and very private. Uh, one of the details that was revealed by Snowden was that the National Security Agency, the NSA, keeps a record of every single phone call we make. Uh, he alerted us to the fact that even major corporations are also spying on us. AT&T, for example, has records of every single phone call that has passed through their wires since 1988. But while Snowden's whistleblowing forced him to run for his life, he's now living in an, in, uh, in an undisclosed location in Russia, what it revealed is that we have now arrived at a point that everybody feared we would be headed toward, and that is to a place where privacy is never guaranteed any longer. These days, if you want privacy, You've got to go to undeveloped land. You need to throw away your cell phone. You need to throw away your computer and anything else that might connect you to the internet. You need to pay cash for every purchase that you make. And even then, if you ever go into town, uh, there are cameras absolutely everywhere. And if they don't already have facial recognition in place, um, it seems like it's only a matter of time before that happens as well. It's already in place in places like China. 
But whatever the NSA might know about you, about your privacy, about confidential information about you, it pales in comparison to what God knows about you, friends. The NSA has had their technology for, what, 20 years? You know, less than a generation. But 3,000 years ago, this is what David wrote of God in Psalm 139, verses 2 and 5. He said, You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. And if you understand that, if you understand what that means, you understand that it creates a dilemma for every single one of us because every single one of us sins and God hates sin. He absolutely abhors sin. Even the most mature Christians, however, continue to sin. Think about the Apostle John, who was at least 70 years old. He was probably older than 70 years old when he wrote the epistle we refer to as 1 John. In that letter, even as an old man, even as an old man who had walked with Jesus and talked with Jesus and, and touched Jesus for a few years earlier on in his life, he wrote this in his old age. He said, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. He meant that first and foremost about himself as an old, mature Christian who had walked with Jesus. Now, would you not think that John would have reached the point by the time he was 70 plus years of age that he just wouldn't sin anymore? And yet he makes it clear that we deceive ourselves if we think we have no sin. Notice that he doesn't say we deceive others if we deny that we have sin. No, we deceive ourselves. The truth is that sin warps and distorts our self-perception so much that it's possible uh, for others to be far more aware of our own personal sin than we are. But the reality is that Christian maturity doesn't necessarily mean that we'll sin less. What it means, it means two things. Number one, it means we become more aware of our sin. That's definitely a mark of Christian maturity. But secondly, it also means we grow to hate our sin more. We grow to hate sin in general more, but especially our own. But even the old and even the mature cannot hide the fact that they continue to persist in sin. And God knows all of it. All of it. And He hates all of it. But this is exactly why forgiveness, this is exactly why grace is so amazing. Why it's the most incredible blessing that we could ever imagine if we truly understand how much God hates sin. Now, do you think it would be incredible if somebody came up to you and offered to buy you a new house or to pay off your mortgage? You'd say, wow, that's, that's the greatest blessing imaginable. No, it's not. It's nothing compared to being forgiven by God. Being forgiven by God is better than winning the lottery. It's better than being the most intelligent person on the planet. It's better than being the most powerful person on the planet. Those things, all these things, they're just earthly treasure. Those things might reap temporary benefits, but you will eventually lose them. Nothing is more valuable, and thus nothing is more amazing or worth sacrificing for than God's forgiveness. King David was known as a man after God's own heart. But he's also known for having committed one of the most vile and treacherous sins in the entire Bible. And his response to his sin, if you know the story, was to try to hide it, to cover it up without anybody knowing about it, without having it addressed. And we know what that sin was. Not only did he seduce and have an affair with the wife of an officer in his army, but when she became pregnant, David arranged for her husband, Uriah the Hittite, to be killed in the line of war. David's sin was a disgusting, heinous, vile sin. And maybe that's why he covered it up, but by covering it up, he also served to sear his own conscience to the wickedness of sin. 
When the prophet Nathan finally came to address him about his sin, he told David a parable. It was a story about two men, a rich man that had many flocks and a poor man that just had a lamb, one little lamb. And without warning in this story, and for no legitimate reason, the rich man came and stole the poor man's one lamb. Now remember, David had been a shepherd, and he knew what that was worth to that one man. And so he immediately responded to this story by standing up and shouting, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. To which Nathan responded, You are the man. David had been exposed. But this scene reveals the way that hiding his sin had completely seared his conscience. It had turned him into a complete hypocrite who could no longer see the vile nature of his own sin. It dropped his self-awareness level to zero. His response to being exposed was to humble himself and to immediately say to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And the response of the prophet was to say, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. So David would go on to write Psalm 51, right, which we regularly sing here at New Beginnings Church. It was a psalm of confession. It was a psalm of repentance. But he also wrote this psalm that we'll be looking at today, Psalm 32, in the aftermath of this confession and repentance. This is a psalm about the joy and the blessing of receiving forgiveness from God. This psalm speaks of the absolute foolishness of unconfessed sin and the devastating power of sin when it is hidden and covered up rather than being confessed and turned from. The Christian life doesn't just start with repentance. The Christian life continues with repentance. And without regular repentance, our growth and our joy will both be stifled. This psalm was written by David to teach and to encourage God's people throughout the ages to confess their sins to God. And the point of this psalm is that confessing our sin is a central part of victorious Christian living. You might even say that the point of this psalm is exactly what John writes in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, where he says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we'll start by looking at Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2, a psalm of David, a masculine. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. The psalm immediately introduces us to a new term, uh, that term being masculine. Uh, now, some have speculated uh, on what that is. Some have thought, you know, maybe it's an instrument that this psalm was supposed to be sung to. Uh, but the overwhelming majority of Hebrew scholars believe that this signifies that it is a psalm of instruction. And this is actually the first psalm to bear this title. So the psalm begins the same way that actually the Sermon on the Mount started, and that is with the word, Blessed. In, in the Hebrew text, the word is in the plural tense, which signifies that this word blessed is multiplied many, many times over. Thus, our text reads, how blessed. He's talking about a heavenly blessing that has no earthly competition. Nothing on earth compares to it. And who receives this incredible blessing? David tells us, he whose transgression is forgiven whose sin is covered. Now, the word transgression refers to an act of willful rebellion. It's not accidental. It's very intentional. It's very deliberate. It's willful. It indicates that the person didn't just accidentally cross some line with God, but the fact that they looked at the line and deliberately took a step over it with no intention of turning back. 
They stepped out of the light, and they stepped into the darkness, and thereby defied God's sovereign authority. To transgress is to willfully separate one's self from God. To willfully depart from the light of His presence. What an absolutely terrifying place to be, especially if we remember what John says of the importance of walking in the light. Again, in 1 John, he writes, If we say that we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. To transgress, therefore, is to abandon fellowship with God. Why would somebody do this? Why would somebody willfully do this? I mean, we can understand perhaps why the unregenerate man would do something like this, but why would a child of God do something like this? Why would somebody who has tasted the sweetness of the fresh streams of fellowship with God go and drink from a dirty toilet? Because that's exactly what it is. That's exactly what it is. That's what every other option is in comparison to the sweetness of fellowship with God. Why would somebody do this? Why would a Christian do this? The flesh is still. Even in our sanctification, the flesh is still so strong. And this kind of action not only separates a person from God, but it separates them from true fellowship with God's people. Because the basis of the unity of fellowship of God's people is our fellowship with God Himself. Think about it. What did David do for that one year where he just tried to hide his sin? What did he do for an entire year? For an entire year, he pretended that life just goes on. Like nothing happened. He continued to go and gather with God's people on a regular basis to worship despite his unconfessed transgression. And it did nothing for him. It burdened him, if anything, as we'll see as we go through this psalm. But if transgressing God's law has given David a heavy, toilsome burden to carry, and it has, that's what makes it such an incredible amazing gift and blessing to be forgiven. The Hebrew word here literally means, for forgiven, literally means to have one's sin lifted off. If you imagine a sin as a, as in a gigantic boulder that just keeps getting heavier and heavier and you're carrying it around, to be forgiven means to have one's sin lifted off. The forgiveness that David received, therefore, is such a relief. This forgiveness was received, as we'll see as we go through this psalm, by confessing his sin to God. But before we go any further, we have to understand exactly what it means to confess in a biblical sense. Because there's one sense in which confession means just admitting that you did it. But the Bible takes us beyond just admitting that you did it. The, the word confess, the biblical understanding of it, means to agree with what God says about that sin. To not only admit that you did it, but to say, you're right, I, I deserve death. I deserve hell forever because of this sin. The parallel to this to his transgression being forgiven, if, if you continue, there's a parallel in the same verse, is his sin being covered. To sin means to miss the mark, but it's no less dangerous than a, than a transgression. It's just a, it's a different aspect of sin. As Alexander McLaren noted, quote, all sin is a departure from God. It's the word that would describe an archer. This word sin describes an archer who aims for the target and misses it. David's relief, therefore, came when he brought his sin out into the open before God. He went from trying to cover it to having it covered. Do you see the difference between those two things? From trying to sweep it under the rug to having it removed from him as far as east is from the west. The Hebrew word for covered is derived from a word that connects to the imagery of the Day of Atonement. When the high priest would go into the temple with the blood of an animal that had been sacrificed, and he would take the blood into the most holy place, the holy of holies, and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. 
How blessed, David says again, is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. Because David had been honest about his sin, because he had confessed his sin, the Lord graciously and mercifully took it off the record. He erased the record. He he chose not to count this sin against God. Instead, God washed the books, so to speak. He gave David a, a clean slate. It's an accounting term. He erased the records of, God, of, of David's rebellion. And this blessing is found by those in whose spirit is no deceit. For about a year, David's spirit was filled with deceit. He deceived himself. He tried to deceive those around him. He even tried to deceive God. But friends, let's be clear about this much. There is no deceiving God. You do not deceive God. I do not deceive God. Nobody deceives God. He sees it all. He knows it all. Transgression. These are the terms we find here. Transgression, sin, iniquity, deceit. These are all the synonyms, all the words that David uses to describe what he has done. Each one of those words conveys something different about the nature of sin and how vile and how disgusting it is. Transgression, it starts as a deliberate act of rebellion against God. Sin, this shows that David has fallen short of the holy and righteous standards that God has instructed man to live by. Iniquity describes an inward polluting of his entire being. And finally, man justifies his sin to the extent that he even deceives himself by refusing to deal with his sin. And all of it is washed away as far as God is concerned by bringing his sin into the light and confessing it openly and freely before God. Friends, this blessing is yours and mine as well when we bring our sins into the light, openly confessing them before God. The burden that sin places on the soul of His children who wander astray is heavy. It is a toilsome, toilsome burden. But God removed that burden for David and He will remove it for you if you will freely and openly confess your sin before the Lord. Look at the words that He uses for the the benefit of this. Forgiven, covered, not imputed. These are the terms that describe this incredible blessing. The parallel of these synonyms conveys to us the thorough and the certain nature of the cleansing, the forgiveness that David received, and which you too will receive by confessing your sins before the Lord. You too can know and experience this incredible, rich, overwhelming joy that David felt as he wrote this psalm. And David wants you to know how. The Lord wants you to know how too. And so David moves from telling us about the incredible blessing of being forgiven by God to recalling the time when he tried to conceal or hide his sin before the Lord and how his stubborn refusal to deal with his sin rightly affected him and his relationship with the Lord. So we continue in verses 3-5. to David continues writing, When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. For a year, David didn't deal with his sin. For a year, David tried to suppress his sin. He tried to act as if it wasn't really that big of a deal. And so he just kept silent about it. His assumption, which I should add is a faulty assumption, his assumption was that if he just kept quiet about it, if he just kept silent about it, the burden of it would eventually just go away. But that's not what happened. That's not at all what 
happened. Think about what happened as we read that story, as we remember that story. His burden didn't decrease over time. It increased. He tried to remain unconcerned about it, but as long as he postponed actually doing something about it, actually dealing with it, God remained concerned about it and wouldn't allow David to remain in silence peacefully. David says that the result of his silence, first of all, was that his body wasted away. The word for body can also be translated as bones depending on what your translation is. Either way, the indication is the same. The indication is that his physical strength His vigor and vitality, they were drained by the heavy hand of God weighing constantly upon him. God literally inflicted physical discipline upon David's body as David tried to cover up his sin by just being quiet about it and wishing that it would just go away. Now you might be thinking, wait a minute, you know, I thought God wanted me to be happy And indeed he does, but he will only let his children be happy about things that they should be happy about. And sin is not one of those things. If God allows you to be happy in your sin and in your silence, what assurance do you think you have that he cares for you as a father, an all-knowing father, cares for his children? Let me be straightforward about this. If you are happy in your sin, you have absolutely no assurance. Zero. Nada. Zilch. Zip. You have no assurance that you are in right standing with God. He wants you to be happy if you're His child. Which is exactly why the Scriptures tell us, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6, those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines. He disciplines and He scourges every son whom He receives. Why does He do that? Because He wants them to be happy in Him. In Him. In the right things. And so David tells us that his body wasted away as God's hand was upon him heavily. His vitality was depleted. He was like a river that was running dry under the hot summer heat. His body physically hurt. His soul spiritually ached. He was miserable. He was depressed. He was distant and downcast as long as he remained silent about his sin and tried to cover it up. But finally, David is confronted. And so he stops lying to himself. He stops deceiving himself. He stops trying to convince himself that this agony that he was in would just pass and that all he needed to do was silently hold out just a little bit longer. And instead, he turns to the Lord to acknowledge and confess his sin. Verse 5 is the crucial, central verse here in this psalm. This is how to experience this blessing, this overwhelming joy of being forgiven, of having the toilsome burden of guilt and sin and shame that's weighing down on us removed. This verse is the turning point. First, David says that he acknowledged his sin before the Lord. That is to say, he admitted that he did it. His sin was against a lot of people. Out of our sin, if you take any sin, yes, it may be against people, but ultimately it is a sin against God. He knew that God knew. And he knew that his sin was first and foremost against God. So he didn't need to fill God in on all the details. God already knew all the details and he knew that. But there is no such thing as secret sin when it comes to God. All David could do was begin by acknowledging his sin before God. He didn't try to withhold anything from God. He didn't pull any punches. He didn't try to conceal or cover any of his iniquity. The phrase did not cover up means to fully reveal, to, to bring it completely in all its ugliness, all its vile wickedness out into the open. Confessing sin before God 
involves exposing that sin for all that it truly is. It means agreeing with what God says about your sin. And that's exactly what David did as he confessed his sin to God. He says, you forgave the guilt of my sin. David knew that he had very intentionally, very deliberately, very willfully crossed a line with God. Have you ever done that? He had defied God's sovereign rule and reign over his life. Have you ever done that? He had tried to be his own God and to live by his own rules, shaped by his own desires. Have you ever done that? And David saw the futility of it. Have you? He knew that his actions demanded confession and repentance. And having confessed and repented of his treason against the Lord, which is what all sin is, it's treason against the Lord, he could now proclaim of the Lord what he says here, you forgave the guilt of my sin. What a joyful thing for him to write. The heavy burden was gone. It was lifted off. It was washed away. It was completely removed from him. Do you know this toilsome burden of carrying sin that's unconfessed, friends? Have you felt God's heavy hand weighing down upon you? Have you tried to play God over your own life to set your own rules and live by those? Have you been so deceived that you think He hasn't noticed or that He doesn't care about it if you're His child? Free yourself. Free yourself from this burden by confessing and repenting of your sin before the Lord. Leave the darkness and by the grace of God, step back into the light. Have you forgotten what John says in 1 John 1.9? If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's our greatest need, especially when we've been trying to conceal sin, when we haven't been dealing with sin in our lives. So having experienced this wonderful, joyous blessing that's found in confessing and repenting of our sin before the Lord, David now turns to us, to his readers, to instruct us and to counsel us to do what he has done. Let's look at verses 6 to 11. He continues writing, Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a great flood of waters they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be as the horse or as the mule which have no understandings, whose trappings include bit and brittle to hold them in check. Otherwise, they will not come near to you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. David says that if you are godly, you must go to the Lord in prayerful confession while He may be found. In other words, do not presume upon God's grace. Do not presume upon His willingness to wait for your confession and repentance. What a terrible and stupid thing to do to presume upon God's grace and patience. All that does is add to your burden. All that does is add sin upon sin upon sin. In other words, imagine for a second that you get a loan for $1,000, but you get it from a loan shark. The interest rate for this loan is 20%. That's 20% per week, by the way. What that means is that after one week, you will owe that loan shark $1,200. The next week, another 
20% is added, and so you will owe $1,440. But let's say that all along, you, you were able to pay off this, this debt, uh, but you just chose not to. The, the second week, you could have paid it off, but you chose not to. You're, you're just incurring interest upon interest. It's just compounding. It's got a compounding effect, making it a bigger and bigger debt against you. You could have paid it off, but you waited. Do not take this foolish approach toward God and sin, friends. It is not the way to deal with sin by just waiting and presuming upon His grace and patience. Do not wait to confess your sin to God. You will only incur sin upon sin by presuming upon His grace and patience. David continues by writing of those who, like him, come to the Lord and confess sin while he may still be found. He says, surely in a flood of great waters, they will not reach him. Now the imagery here is one of God's people coming to him for forgiveness and having done so, no flood waters will harm them. Now the image of a flood should surely remind us of the great flood in Noah's time. That flood was a downpouring of God's wrath against sin. While God promised that He wouldn't flood the earth again, He has promised that the day will come when He will pour out His holy and just wrath against all sin. But that wrath will not come against the person who confesses their sin to the Lord. And the reason that God's wrath will not harm God's people is because every one of God's people can truly say of the Lord, you are my hiding place. Just like David says here. What exactly was it that David needed to be hidden from? And what exactly is it that you and I need to be hidden from? The answer, maybe ironically, the answer is we need to be hidden from God Himself. God must hide His people. He must shelter and protect His people from Himself, from the outpouring of His just and holy wrath. And so to that end, the Lord, who is a righteous and just judge, sent His only Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to not only live a perfect, sinless life, but also to die a sinner's death in the place of all who would confess their sin, and repent and believe in Jesus. God must pour out His wrath on all sin. On all sin. That's what a just judge does. And thus the Lord Jesus, who knew no sin, took our sin upon Himself. The sin of all who would believe in Jesus was imputed to Him, or it was credited to Him. There's those accounting terms again. He bore the awful outpouring of God's wrath against our sin. But we needed more than that. We not only needed our sin to be taken from us, to be lifted from us, to be taken as far from the east as from the west, but we also needed the perfect, unblemished righteousness of God that He demands. And thus, not only was our sin credited to Jesus, but His righteousness, His perfect righteousness, His active obedience was credited to all who believe in Him. Forgiveness is received in this way, so that God is both perfectly just and the justifier of all who savingly believe on Jesus Christ, who shelters us, so to speak, from God's holy and just wrath against sin. The only alternative, friends, the only alternative to Jesus taking your sin is for your sin to remain upon you and that you bear the infinite and eternal wrath that God has against your sin. David continues by telling us, I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. See, because David had experienced this, because he had gone through this ordeal, the pain, the burden, and the incredible sense of overwhelming and joyful blessing and relief that's accompanied by receiving forgiveness, because he'd been through this, he would instruct others to do the same. 
See, receiving God's grace, receiving God's forgiveness frees us from the burden of carrying unresolved sin. But it also gives us a different kind of burden. It gives us a mission of telling others about the grace of God which is found by repenting and believing in Jesus Christ alone. David encourages us as his readers to that end. He says, Do not be as the horse or as the mule which have no understanding. The stubborn horse or the stubborn mule, they, they have the potential to just be so obstinate, so persistently rebellious that they refuse to go where the rider directs them to go. And they refuse to go at the speed that the rider directs them to go at. Young horses can be so dangerous to ride they do have their own ideas about which direction they should be going and when to accelerate and when to stop. I'll never forget uh, the time that Christina and I, when we were engaged, we went horseback riding uh, in the, the valleys outside of Las Vegas. And at one point, um, her horse, which was a younger horse that they had had problems with before, uh, decided that he was going to trot, not so casually, over to the edge of a canyon that was a couple hundred yards away. She and I kind of laugh about it today. She hasn't ridden a horse since, by the way. <laughs> we laugh about it today, though, only because the tour guide chased after her horse and brought her back safely. Don't be like that horse with God. Unlike the stubborn horse or the mule that goes where the rider doesn't want to go, the godly should respond promptly to the way that God directs us. And when we're not going in the direction that He directs us, we should be quick to fix that. And we do that through confession and repentance. So do not be like the young and wild horse that gallops headlong towards sin, only to become as stubborn and pokey as a mule when it comes to confessing and repenting of your sin. The wild horse and the mule, they need, they need a bit and brittle to keep them in line. To keep us going in the direction that God would have us go, He's given us at least two things. First of all, His Holy Word, and secondly, His Holy Spirit. We must learn to yield to both. The Word instructs us, and the Spirit gives us understanding of His Word. And not only that, but the Spirit also gives us conviction Conviction to do what? To obey. To obey what we have been given understanding of. Do not quench the Spirit, Paul says to the Thessalonians, but examine everything carefully, hold fast to that which is good, abstain from every form of evil. Finally, in verses 10 and 11 here in, uh, in Psalm 32, David lays out a contrast between two kinds of people. There are only two kinds of people in the world. There are the wicked and there are the righteous. And he gives us a contrast between these two groups. The wicked have many sorrows, David says. These sorrows are, are woes. They're, they're cursed. But the, the, the Hebrew word there can be used to refer to a, a, even a sickness. But the loving kindness of God surrounds the righteous. The loving kindness of God surrounds the person who trusts in the Lord. David knew this through his own experiences. The Hebrew word for loving kindness here, by the way, this is the word that we keep finding over and over and over again as we've been going through the Psalms. That word is hesed. Hesed. That's the word that refers to a love for his people, a covenantal love that God has for his people that he does not have for those who are not his. It's a love that is only extended to those who trust in him. David refers to them as righteous ones in verse 11. But the righteousness of God's people, the righteousness that they have, isn't their own. God's people stand only in the righteousness of Christ that has been credited or imputed to them by grace alone, through faith alone, in the Messiah Jesus Christ alone. It's the only righteousness. The righteousness of Christ is the only righteousness that God will accept. And they stand in it. God's people, the righteous ones, stand in it as if it is their very own. 
because Jesus took our sin upon himself as if that were his very own. What incredible grace. What incredible, amazing grace. Is there anything that you can find more joy in than that? That God would save a wretch like me or like you or anyone. When we understand the beauty of forgiveness, when we understand the beauty of God's saving grace and the freedom of forgiveness, then we can understand the blessed joy of confessing and repenting of sin. Therefore, we can, as David says, be glad in the Lord and rejoice. Shout for joy, he says. Why? Because we've not only been forgiven, our sin has not only been lifted from us, we've not only been freed from the penalty of sin, but we've also been freed from the power of sin, and the day is coming when we will even be removed from the presence of sin. Amen? Is that something to be excited about? Of course it is. Because sin is vile and disgusting. Paul told the Galatians who struggled with their understanding of freedom, do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. Yeah, that temptation is always there for even the most mature Christian. But do not use your freedom as an opportunity to indulge your flesh. We haven't been forgiven and set free in order that we can sin. We've been forgiven and set free in order that we may obey what God has instructed us to do. Friends, this psalm has provided every single one of us, each and every one of us, with something we regularly need. And that is real, straightforward talk about sin. The pain it causes the burden it creates, the wrath that it's due, and what to do about it when we fall into it. Confessing our sin is a central part of victorious Christian living. Let every one of us be reminded that the sin that the world loves and the sin that the world celebrates, God hates and will one day pour His holy and just wrath out on what the world calls pleasure, God calls repugnant. What the world calls appropriate, God calls abomination. What the world calls fantasy, God calls fatality. What the world calls enjoyable, God calls evil. What the world calls weakness, God calls willfulness. Never forget, friends, that every single thought, word, or deed that does not line up with the righteous standard that God has revealed to us in His Word is not only sinful, but there's an intentionality behind it. There's a deliberate revolt against God behind every sin. Do not be defiant over God's sovereign rule in your life. Not only does that offend God, but it only brings a burden upon yourself. You must never even give a foothold to sin in your life. And you must never, never trivialize or try to rationalize the sin in your life. Every sin, even the smallest sin, separates us from fellowship with God. And you might say, but here's my struggle. I love my sin. What do you do with that? What do you do if the problem is that you love your sin? You hate the fact that you love it. And you go to the Lord. And you ask for help. You think that He would not give you help in that moment? And you continue to hold that attitude toward the sin that you love. That you hate the fact that you love it. And you confess it and you repent of it. Every sin... Every sin, even the smallest ones, separate us from fellowship with God. And yet, the glorious truth of the gospel is that when we confess our sins before the Lord, He is faithful and just to forgive us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and to renew us.
So friends, confess your sin. And confess often that you too may know, not only up here, but in your life experientially, that you may know the joy of being washed clean and completely forgiven of sin. Let's pray. Our most gracious Father, we do thank You for Your Word, for the way that it instructs us, for the way that it convicts us, for the way that it directs us in Your way. And we thank You for that blessing, O Lord. We pray that You would make us a people who are increasingly aware of our sin. And not only increasingly aware of our sin, but increasingly aware of the heinousness of our sin. Lord, we pray that by the power of Your Spirit working in us, that You would teach us to hate what You hate and to love what You love. And teach us even, O Lord, to hate what we love, if it should be an offense toward You. In order that we may be cleansed of our sin, in order that we may walk with You in the light and have fellowship with You in the light. And this is what You have promised, that if we confess our sin, that's what You will do. You will cleanse us. You will forgive us. You will lift the sin and the guilt and the shame from us. So teach us, O Lord, to be a people who confess regularly in order that we may live a life that's pleasing to You. And give us a burden, O Lord, to proclaim the good news of this forgiveness, this grace, this incredible grace that's received by confessing Christ as Lord. We pray this in His name. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.